Money FM 89.3, the best of the breakfast huddle. The weekly wrap on Money FM 89.3. Money FM 89.3. Good morning. It's the Breakfast Huddle. I'm Elliot Danker. It's time to take a look at the headline of the week. And it's a headline that's dominated the papers for the past couple of days uh, on the back of uh, U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. This morning, front page of the Straits Times talks about missiles being fired in Chinese drills that hit seas near Taiwan and Japan. Various headlines going around about the economic impact of Taiwan flaring up, as well as how Taiwanese are trying to go on, you know, with life as normal uh, while these uh, live fire drills are happening around the island. Uh, well, there's a lot to talk about this. Uh, of course, uh, U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's whirlwind visit, not just to Taiwan, but in a sense to Asia. We'll find out more right now from Kishore Mabubani, who is Distinguished Fellow Asia Research Institute for the National University of Singapore. Good morning, sir. How are you? Very well, thank you. Kishore, I want to appreciate a conversation you gave uh, about two days ago to uh, an international network talking about this issue. At that time, uh, Ms. Pelosi had just landed in Taiwan and you described the situation as China being a 4,000-year-old dragon who's woken up but going about its business and then the Americans came along and poked it in the eye. Yes, exactly. I mean, the tragedy about the Pelosi visit is that she did it for purely selfish domestic reasons to look good in the you know domestic media in the United States without looking at the larger strategic picture on U.S.-China relations. And there's another New York Times columnist, I'm sure you heard of him, Tom Friedman, who mm. described the visit as reckless, dangerous, and irresponsible. And I completely agree with Tom Friedman's assessment because what she did could have frankly, triggered off World War Three, and she didn't even give a damn about that. Okay, I do want to dive into more details with regard to that, especially with the drills that are taking place, the missile drills. But if you don't mind, Ms. Kishore, I know she is supposed to go to Tokyo today. That's the final leg of her trip. She's just completed mm-hmm. the Korean one. In light of all this, this whole Asia tour of Asia type of thing, I mean, what was it supposed to achieve? Because I think that narrative is lost now. Well, I think it's okay for the Speaker of the House to visit friendly countries with whom the United States has diplomatic relations. The United States has diplomatic relations with Singapore, Malaysia, Japan, and South Korea. But the United States does not have diplomatic relations with Taiwan, does not recognize Taiwan as an independent sovereign state. The United States acknowledges that there should be a one-China policy. So what she was doing in going there, therefore, was when she visits the friendly states of the United States, she's doing the normal thing. But when she visited Taiwan, she was being completely irresponsible. Mm. And without being aware that this is obviously a very dangerous thing to do, and you must look carefully at what are you trying to achieve by getting there. Mm. So at the end of the day, she achieved nothing and only created a more dangerous situation. Mm. Mm. Uh, how, does that, how does that help the world? Yeah, a lot of headlines. Uh, well, she achieved a bunch of remarks, uh, for sure. Mm. And if we were to really analyze this, right, so you already have President Biden, not to say distancing himself, but it was made clear that he can't really control her travel plans <laughs> in that sense. Now, tariffs were imposed on China during the Trump administration. Then during the Biden administration, they wanted to take away some amount of those tariffs to fight inflation. Obviously, that hasn't really...
really help. And now with this, it feels like there's no way to repair the damage, especially with some of these Chinese tech firms looking to come out of the United States and just, you know, list in Hong Kong, for example. I'm glad you're referring to the larger issues in the U.S.-China relationship because what is at stake here is something that is enormous because we are about to see an acceleration of the largest geopolitical contest that we have ever seen in human history between two great powers. We have accumulated power on a scale that we have never seen before. And it's important to understand that in an all-out war between U.S. and China, the whole world will be incinerated, including we in Singapore. So the stakes here are very high. So the responsible thing to do is to take steps to try and manage this conflict uh, carefully and strategically. And you're right. President Joe Biden's administration was thinking of lifting some of the tariffs on Chinese products because these tariffs have not hurt China at all. They have actually hurt American consumers. And privately, I think Janet Yellen, who's the Secretary of Treasury, would like to lift these tariffs. Mm. But the Biden administration is divided on this issue with the USTR opposing the lifting of these tariffs. And so as a result of that, there has been no movement on this subject. But the only piece of good news I want to share with your listeners, because I don't want to depress everyone so early in the morning in Singapore. (laughs) The only piece of good news is that overall, the number of dialogues between the United States and China have stepped up. You know, Jake Sullivan met Yang Jiechi, Wang Yi met Blinken. And most recently, she and Biden had a Zoom call with each other. But what was terrible was that yesterday, when both Wang Yi, the foreign minister, and the Secretary of State Blinken were together in the same capital uh, in Phnom Penh, Cambodia, for the um, ASEAN meeting, they did not meet each other. Mm. And that's a very bad sign. Mm-hmm. I do want to dive into a little more dynamics here. I mean, naturally, if you didn't understand the situation as well, it would be natural for you to think, wait a minute, could China take a page out of Russia's playbook. I don't think it's quite the same situation considering China's one of those countries that's very measured. They take the time to plan. And the worst part is they're very patient. Mm, Absolutely. And you're right. You cannot compare Taiwan and Ukraine because Ukraine is a sovereign, independent country. And therefore, the Russian invasion of uh, Ukraine was illegal under international law. But, you know, as you know, the vast majority of countries do not recognize Taiwan as an independent sovereign country. In fact, the vast majority of countries acknowledge Taiwan and China are one country and have therefore called for a peaceful resolution of a dispute between two parts of one country. So the nature of the dispute is very, very different. This is why, by the way, the other unwise thing that happened yesterday, a day before, was that the G7 countries Mm. came out with a statement on the Taiwan Straits. It's okay to call for peace, Mm. but they should also correctly said that they support the one China policy. Individually, each one of these seven countries supports a one China policy, but none of them mentioned it in the G7 statement. Now, that's very dangerous and reckless also. Mm. So I think the G7 countries uh, should consider very carefully Did their statement help to bring peace in the Taiwan Straits or did it aggravate the situation? Mm -hmm. And this is where the, what is the fundamental problem here 
and this is what I emphasize in my book as China won, mm. is that the West doesn't have a long-term strategy for managing the return of China. It's got to sit back and figure out what is it it can do to stop the rise of China and where it cannot stop the rise of China and where it's got to learn to work with China. And mm. this has got to be part of a comprehensive long-term strategy. Uh, and yeah. this is something that they haven't done yet. Or perhaps some level of acceptance. Uh, I mean, if you just look statistically at the rise of their economy and how quickly they've become the world's second largest economy, I mean, to project that they'll take over as number one, you, you wouldn't be wrong there. Mr. Kishaw, how difficult is it to resolve this? Because at the end of the day, China's claim to Taiwan is an issue that dates back as far as uh, their own civil war between the Nationalists and the Communist Party. And then even before that, the fact that, you know, it was occupied by Japan for so long. I mean, can it ever be resolved to say that this is actually a Nationalist Party issue and not the current Communist Party issue? Well, I think it can be resolved. I think if you had wise statesmen around uh, who were looking for a win-win solution, it is conceivable to have a win-win solution whereby the people of Taiwan continue to enjoy all the freedom and autonomy that they currently enjoy. And then you create a kind of what I would call a diplomatic fudge whereby they acknowledge that they are part of China without being controlled or run or managed by China. There are ways and means of achieving a compromise formula where both sides get what they want Mm. without there being a war. But of course, if you push Taiwan, there are forces in Taiwan that want to announce independence or declare independence. Mm. And of course, the leader of Taiwan, unfortunately, is someone who's trying one who's inclined towards independence. And if you encourage that, there are very few, you know, I'm, I've been a student of geopolitics for over 50 years now. Yeah. And I can tell you there are very few things that are certain or definite in geopolitics. But one thing that is absolutely certain is in the day that Taiwan declares independence on the day after China will declare war. There's a 100% certainty that this will happen. So that's why it's very dangerous for Nancy Pelosi uh, and the G7 to make statements that could in one way or another encourage the independence of Taiwan because that's a prescription for war. Yeah, and there are a lot of commentary coming out, especially from yourself or the newspapers, talking precisely about this issue, which brings me to my next point. What happens now? Are people who knew or know Nancy Pelosi going to say, well, that's not really my friend. We work together, but I don't know her. Take, for example, uh, her visit to Korea, right? President Yoon Seok-yeol snubbing a visit. I mean, he said that he's on holiday. I'm not sure if perhaps that's potentially because of the emotions that she stoked during her visit to Taiwan. She's going to visit Japan today. What kind of effect are we going to see there? And how does this affect? Did she sabotage her party as far as the midterms are concerned? Uh, I wouldn't say that she has uh, sabotaged her party because, you know, for most Americans, the fundamental issue will be domestic issues. So it will be the price of gas. Okay. Uh, in November that will determine the outcome of the November elections. Of course, by the way, just for information, the price of gas will also be determined by whether or not the war in Ukraine is still carrying on in uh, November. So I hope that for domestic reasons, I think you'll see in Europe also, the price of gas will lead to the toppling of some governments in Europe. The price of gas could lead to the Democrats losing the midterm elections. So therefore, the war in Ukraine does have global consequences. And just going back to South Korea and 
Taiwan for one second. Yeah. Uh, I think the fact that the president did not meet Nancy Pelosi was an indication that South Korea, uh, which of course is whose main concern is North Korea, yeah. the South Koreans understand very well that you cannot resolve the North Korean issue unless you get the cooperation of China. Mm. Therefore, that's the reason why South Korea so far has not joined something called the Quad, mm-hmm. because they know that if they join the Quad, it'll be like, let's go back to my old analogy, poking the dragon in the eye as it is waking up after 200 years of slumber. Yeah. I mean, uh, and this last question is not to take away uh, anything from the Taiwanese who are really uh, anxious about their own situation there. But for the rest of us in Asia and Southeast Asia, I mean, we look at this situation, we recognize where businesses are concerned, we do need China, but we also don't want to make enemies with the United States. I mean, how delicate are relationships right now for us here in Southeast Asia? Well, I think this is where I think uh, the policy adopted by Singapore, I think, is the correct one. Singapore has made it very clear to the United States that he wants to be a good friend of the United States. Singapore has made it very clear to China that he wants to be a good friend of China. And Singapore has also made it very clear to both sides that Singapore doesn't want to take sides in their dispute. And this is basically the position uh, of the ASEAN countries also. So I think that's the wisest course to adopt. And for us, we should be very, very grateful uh, Mm. that we have a strong functioning ASEAN. But we should not take this strong functioning ASEAN for granted. We must continue to strengthen it and work on strengthening it. And, you know, as you know, I said this in my book, The ASEAN Miracle, that the development of a strong ASEAN is a huge geopolitical gift for Singapore. And Singapore should become the number one champion of ASEAN unity and ASEAN solidarity. Been speaking with Kishore Mabubani, who is Distinguished Fellow Asia Research Institute for the National University of Singapore. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Take care and have a great day ahead. My pleasure. Thank you. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SPH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.